Uh, but today, Matthew chapter 2. In, in chapter 1, we, we talked about Matthew's focus, um, some of his past, that he w- was a tax collector for Rome, uh, which was a very specialized place. He had to be a very intelligent person. He had to read and write in Hebrew and uh, Greek and be fluent. He had to be uh, an expert in mathematics. All these things uh, applied to Matthew. And the Lord would use some of those skills uh, in writing the gospel. That Matthew is very detailed in the things that he brings out. But his focus, he's writing primarily to Israel. He's writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters and bringing out the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So he points a lot back to uh, prophecy, almost, well, we saw it last week, we'll see it again this week. He points a lot uh, to different Jewish terms and traditions, and he doesn't usually explain them. Uh, you know, I think last week there, at the very end, he gave a translation for Emmanuel, God with us. But that's the rarity. Most times, Matthew's just going to cruise right on by these things. He's mentioning them for the Jewish reader to go, oh yeah, but he assumes they already know what those things are about. And he started to, to point, by pointing out the genealogy of Jesus. And we can look at that genealogy, man, that's a lot of names, and, and, but he doesn't just bring it out to bring out some historical names. Now, he brings it out for a couple reasons, but the main one is the Messiah must come through the tribe of Judah and the line of David. And so we talked about that actually we end up with two genealogies. We have one here in Matthew and we have one in Luke. And they are the same until you get to the house of David and then it splits. And so the simple explanation is is that one is Joseph's genealogy and one is Mary's genealogy, Uh, which again is is awesome because it covers every aspect legally in a genealogical, there it is, way. Uh, It covers all the bases pointing to Jesus of having the correct lineage to be the Messiah. But I think he also does some interesting things uh, in his genealogy. Matthew lists uh, the names of women, which was very, very rare. Uh, And by doing that, he accomplishes a couple things. Uh, I think primarily was to say, here are people in the line of Jesus that Israel would kind of soon forget. Uh, Not just because they were women, but they were women, many of them with troubled pasts. But he brings it out to say, look, Jesus chose to be identified with them, chose to have these people in his line. And he, he connects himself with unlikely people just like us, right? And I almost wonder if Matthew wasn't going, look, there's, there's a prostitute and there's Gentiles and a tax collector. You know, it's like, look, he can use anybody, including me. Um, and, and it just shows, again, just the love of the Lord, that he could have chosen a line of priests, he could have chosen a line of kings, and, and while we find both priests and kings in his genealogy, we also find just outright sinners that are, were off the rails, and he chose to be connected to them as well. Um, we also looked at Mary and Joseph. You know, it's, it's weird studying uh, passages that are primarily used at Christmas time, uh, and so we kind of looked at it from a little different perspective of, you know, Mary and Joseph were put in a very difficult position. Uh, we don't know much about them, but we definitely get the idea uh, through Scripture that they were very godly people. They were people of integrity. They were people that loved the Lord. Uh, when the angel speaks to, to Mary in uh, Luke's gospel, he calls her a highly favored one. 
That's not a light term that's used. So, so these are people that had a real deep relationship with the Lord, and then they're put in this place where Mary's found with carrying a child before her wedding. And it's what, what will everybody else think, right? That they weren't out of line in any way, but everyone else would think they were, right? But they continue, you know, it, it's neat because both Mary and Joseph show that they are people that have the long term in mind. That this temporary discomfort, no matter what anyone thinks, doesn't matter because they understand the importance of the Messiah. And we see that in Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke, where she talks all about the blessing that has been bestowed upon her. Not once is she saying how difficult it is, or what do other people think, or how hard life is. It's all about, hey, the Lord has chosen her, right? So she looks past those temporary things onto the things that really matter. And we're going to go on in chapter 2. We're going to continue our Christmas message. It continues today. Um, but I have to warn you, there are some things that are going to mess with some people's Christmas traditions as we get into how it actually happened and, and the timing of some of these things that uh, very often we have not understood correctly. So I love messing with people's traditions. Let's pray. <laughs> God, thank you for the power that's in your word. And we want to hear from you today. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would take your word, apply it to our hearts. God, that you'd bring out those things that we're concerned about, those things that would have us worried that we might see in your word your great provision and your great protection. Lord, that we might claim that for ourselves today. And uh, we just give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 2 starting in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered together the chief priests and scribes, of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring him back, bring me back word. Wait, try again. Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, Matthew does not explain how Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem. But of course, we know from Luke that uh, Caesar had put forth a decree that everyone was to return to their own towns, the town of their lineage, in order to be counted, in order to be taxed. That was the whole point. Uh, And so that took them to the place of David and, I believe, Mary's lineage, Bethlehem, the city of David, the town of David. I don't think you'd call it a city. It was pretty small. Um, What I like about this is that here Caesar is believing that he is in control of the whole known world, right? When he makes a decision, it's going to get done. And so he suddenly decides, you know what? I've got an idea. I need everybody taxed. And just to do that, I'm going to send them back to their own town. 
But what's funny to me about that is the Lord needed Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem because he'd already given the prophecy that they would, that's where the Messiah would be born. And so he just like pulls the little puppet strings of Caesar. <laughs> Why don't you have everybody return to their hometown? And, and off they go, right? And I just love how the Lord does this. And again, we don't know how Joseph and Mary, you know, I think in a lot of the movies and things that we see that try and capture this, there's always this like, oh, this is so unfair. And, you know, grumbling about the government, grumbling about Caesar. But we don't know any of that. That they were just choosing to be led by the Lord. You know, that whatever the circumstances were, they're like, okay, the Lord can use this too. Now, I don't believe that they knew that this all was going to happen, that they had to be in Bethlehem for that prophecy to be fulfilled. But I like just, again, we see it in their character, both Mary and Joseph, that there's just a faith in what the Lord is doing. Um, Now, once they went to Bethlehem, Mary has the baby, and they stay there. And they stay there for quite some time. This is the part where I'm going to mess with your Christmas tradition. Because your nativity is wrong. Your little nativity scene. First, back up a little bit. First, Santa and Rudolph should not be in the nativity. I've seen that one in Walmart. Very unscriptural. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) But not only wasn't Santa there, but either were the wise men. They probably showed up at the soonest, about six months after Jesus was born, but closer to two years. And we're going to see that as, the, uh, as Herod figures out the time from the wise men uh, and then goes after the children of Bethlehem who are two and under, right? So that's the timing. Um, again, that's not a huge deal. Candy corrected this when the kids were younger, right? And I asked her about it. I'm like, what do we do? I know we did something like this. Is that, so we had the nativity scene on one side of the piano, but the wise men, they got put on the other side of the piano. <laughs> they're on the way. They're not quite there. So that's how you can make your nativity scene correct. Maybe put them in the kitchen <laughs> or outside. They're, they're on the way. It's going to take two years to get there. They're a ways off. Um, the other thing is that there may have very well been more than three. You know, they always say there was three wise men. Well, it's because there was three gifts, three types of gifts that were given. Uh, it may have been a fairly large group. Uh, and there's other record of groups of wise men uh, that would go on these journeys. In fact, about six years, five, six years after this, a fairly large contingent of wise men from the East showed up in Rome, and there's record of that. And so they would kind of go on these pilgrimages, pilgrim, yeah, well, you know what I'm saying, uh, to, to discover things and to find things, right? And, and it, was, it was like a traveling college class was the idea. These guys would go on their way. So this may have been a, a, could have been a large group, but could have easily been more than three. But who were these guys? Again, there's a lot of uh, tradition that goes along with it, and people have come up with names, you know, Jasper and Casper and Stephen. I don't know what the last guy's name was. There's these traditional three names that go with the wise men. All of that is just made up. Um, The word that's used is actually a very generic word, right? It tended in, in this day 
to mean an astrologer or an astronomer, somebody that studied the stars. Not necessarily to predict the future or anything like that, but they were people that studied the tracking and the, the, you know, how the stars went and all of that stuff. So that was part of it. And that's, you know, these guys are following a star. So that tends to make sense. But it also could mean teacher or philosopher or seer. It just was a very generic term. How did they know anything? If these guys are some, from some far off distant place in the east, how did they know anything about what was going on in Jerusalem or in Judea? Uh, well, it, it's most likely it's from the Jewish culture. And we tend to think that the people of Israel were staying in Israel. But the fact is, is that there were Jewish people everywhere throughout the known world, throughout Rome and, and into the east and all of the, uh, the places of the known world. And with them, the traditions of the Jewish people and the hope of the Messiah went with them as well. And so uh, there's actually uh, two different Roman historians that record the message of the Messiah far beyond Israel. One of them being a message that came in the east, that there was this hope of a ruler that would rise out of Judah or Judea and rule the world. And so it wasn't like they had never heard anything. It may have also been that they had somehow gotten their hands on one of the scrolls of the Old Testament. You know, we don't know that, but it's very possible. Again, the scrolls were not only kept within Israel, but had made their way out into the known world. And if they had, say, the, God, or the, the book of Daniel, all they needed to do is do the math. It's right there that gives the time that the Messiah is going to appear to Israel. So there's plenty of things that show that they could have had a good understanding of what was going to be taking place in Israel. Um, Now, again, some people, what were they following? Was it a star? Was it something else? And there's a lot of different uh, possibilities of at least what started their journey. Uh, You know, it could be an aligning of the stars. Just last year, we had uh, what they call the Christmas star, the star of Bethlehem, right? And it's this convergence of Saturn and Jupiter, and in our case, this last year, we were on a very close orbit to Jupiter and could also see five of Jupiter's moons, so it seemed extra big, right? So there was that possibility, and if you saw that, it was kind of cool. You could kind of see them coming together, and oh man, this is going to be really bright, but the convergence itself was so brief. It's like they they were close to each other, and they touched, and then they were apart, and that was about it. So other people say, well, it could have been a, uh, a comet or a supernova. Those are all interesting, but they all have some serious flaws in them as well. Again, God could have used any of these things to start these guys on their journey. But it was, we'll see much more than any of these uh, when they actually come to Bethlehem. Um, now, they come to Jerusalem. And, and I think there's a couple possibilities The first is that Jerusalem is the main city. You know, they're going to Israel. They want to know about this Messiah possibly they've heard about. They know that there's going to be a king born in Israel, the king of the Jews. Who else to ask but those in charge of Israel? Go to to the religious leaders. Go to Herod or whoever. And so they find themselves before Herod and I think to ask, hey, you guys should know what we're looking for. Unfortunately, they find out the sad truth. 
that wasn't the case. Herod. Who is Herod? Well, here they call him King Herod. Herod was like the middleman between Israel and Rome. And he had power, but he didn't have total freedom in that power. In other words, he was under Rome. And Rome kind of kept a tight thumb on all of the Herods. It gave him some ability. As long as Herod was able to bring in taxes that then went to Rome, they could stay in somewhat power. This is Herod the Great. There were several Herods. That was their title. And so his sons would come up after him, and they were crazy. They were horrible people. This Herod the Great, he gave himself that name. I am Herod the Great. And they all had this weird obsession with they wanted to be Jewish, but they weren't. And so on one hand, they're taxing everybody like crazy in Israel, but they're wanting to be on Israel's good side, and they wanted to go to the temple, and they wanted to be a part of the Jewish worship, but they couldn't, right? And so it's this weird thing that was going on with Herod. Um, And again, he was a horrible person. The older he got... And this is kind of in the latter part of his life. He's still got several years left at this point. But the older he got, the more paranoid he got. And so in his early part, he was an okay leader. But by the end, he was like killing anyone who got in his way. If he thought for a moment this person was going to betray him or take advantage of him, they were dead. Including at least one wife and several of his sons. So bad that... Caesar Augustus said that it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Now that's bad. When you've got Caesar, who is a horrible dude, going, I mean, I'm bad, but that guy's worse, right? You know that that shows that Herod was just a horrible, horrible person. And so the wise men, they don't know any of this. They show up and they just ask, where is he who is to be king of the Jews? Now, or we, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Again, this shows us the birth of Jesus has already taken place. He who has been born. So they're arriving after. In verse 3, it says that when Herod heard, the, heard excuse me, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled uh, mainly because here's another thing that's going to get in his way right? He's not so much troubled about what Rome's going to think. That's probably on the table. He's probably concerned about that a little bit. But here's one more thing that's going to get in his way of being the king, that what little power that he had. And, and we need to understand, too, that in Israel, there is a huge amount of tension during this time. It's not like this is the only story of the Messiah, There were lots of other people that were causing little rebellions and little uprisings. And and so there's this huge tension within Israel as different guys are showing up claiming to be some sort of leader. They may not have said that they were the Messiah, but people were looking for the Messiah like crazy. They knew the time was close. And so he's concerned because this is going to be fuel to that fire. If these guys from the far east have come all this way and they're talking about the king of the Jews, man, that's going to get people going in the wrong direction or according to Herod going in the wrong direction. And the second reason uh, this is probably not only why Herod was concerned, but all of Jerusalem with him, meaning all the leadership of Jerusalem with him, uh, is that Rome tended to frown on anybody that claimed to be a king. And, and they dealt with not only that person, 
but any city or town that accepted that idea. And it wasn't above Rome to go in and just crucify every man within the city and go, well, you said you guys were going to overthrow Rome or you had a different king. Now you're all dead, right? And so people were troubled whenever this idea of a king of the Jews comes up. Um, Again, though, Herod's concern is for himself. He asks the priests where the Christ is to be born. And it's interesting that they don't even have to stop and do research. They're not like, oh, let us get back to you on that. You know, we got to get into the scrolls and find out. They're like, "Uh, Bethlehem, of course. And they quote from Micah chapter 5. So to them, this is like, well, yeah, of course. We know right where the Messiah is going to come from. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. The sad part about that is, is that then why aren't they looking for him? Here are the religious leaders. Here's the scribes and the chief priests. And they know without a doubt the Messiah is coming about any time. He's going to be in Bethlehem. Why aren't they doing anything? Even when these wise men come and say, hey, we know the king of the Jews have been born. Where is he? And they're like, Bethlehem. But we're not going. You know, it's like, you tell us what you find. We're not going anywhere. And you see this indifference of like, ah, maybe he's Messiah, maybe he's not. I don't know. We're not going to get into it. I'm busy. I got too much going on. Whatever their reasoning is, they've got the knowledge and it's not doing them any good. And that's, that's a good thing for us to think about, right? Not to say that we're like the chief priests and the scribes, but it's very possible for us to take in a lot of biblical knowledge and it do us no good. That not only do we need to take in the Word of God, do we need to take in His promises, but we need to act upon them. Because we can quote verses to other people all day long and go, well, yeah, this is what the Bible says. Hey, Micah 5.2 says that this is where He's going to be born. But what are we doing about it? Right? That we need to be those who are not in word only, but in deed. For the chief priests, they are missing it. And here are these foreign people from the Far East, Gentiles, that are, are seeking diligently, possibly a two-year journey to bring them to this place. And again, to me, that's convicting, right? Because I have found, there are, I've come across these instances in my own walk where somebody who doesn't know the Lord, but they want to so badly. And I find that me and my comfort, I'm like, yeah, sure, you know, come to church or whatever. And, and they're like, no, I want to know that, what do you mean Jesus died for me? And there's this hunger and they're like on this journey. And that journey is, is so powerful that you find, it kind of reignites a fire in me to go, yeah, why am I, how have I gotten so comfortable in my own walk? How am I just sitting here, you know, on my promises that I've been given and not fired up about them. And so these guys show up. They're excited of what, what has taken place. Now Herod, in verse 7, he calls them secretly, and he determines the time which the star appeared. Again, this, this shows a few things. It's the time that, uh, that Jesus was born. So the star isn't leading them to the birth, leading, to him, leading them to Jesus after. Most likely the star appeared to them when he was born. And they've been following it since then. Herod says, go find him, that I may come and worship him also. I, I can't picture that in a non-creepy way. Like every time I read it, I'm just like, oh, 
You know, like that it doesn't matter how good of an actor Herod was, just saying that just saying that is just creepy every time. And I just picture the wise men going, <laughs> dude, who are you fooling? We're we're the wise men. Look, it says on my name tag, wise men. We're not falling for that. And I like that they don't make any agreement with him, right? He says, You go, you go do this, you go do all of that. They don't agree to any of it. They just leave. Right? Very wise. Verse 9 says, And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, until it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And then, and excuse me, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented the gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I call my son. Now the star um, that they were following, in verse 9 it says, The star which they had seen in the east went before them. Um, Here's where all of those ideas of what the star could have been. A convergence, a comet, a visible supernova, It's where all of them fail because this seems to be a star that appears and disappears and reappears and disappears again. It says they had seen it in the east. This may have been one of the things that brought them to Jerusalem is that they didn't have a star leading them because when they see it again, it says that it went before them and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And so once they leave Jerusalem, there's the star again. And If it were a star, if it was any sort of celestial body or anomaly, whatever it might be, at very best, it could only give them general direction, maybe to the north, or maybe lead them to a town or a city. But that's all you'd get because you're like, well, yeah, it looks like it's about over Bethlehem. Sure. This one stood over where the young child was, over the very house they knew where to enter. I wonder what the neighbors thought, right? <laughs> well, it's Joseph and Mary again, you know, the bright light in the middle of the night. What's going on? But the, whether it was an angel or whether it was some other anomaly, whether it was the glory of the Lord, and that's one of the thoughts is that the Shekinah glory that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant, that this is the same type of description, right? That this brightness, this glory shone above the very house where they were. Um, now, it may have been some other thing that started their journey, but it was very different when they arrived. And again, it takes them to the exact place, exact house. And they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
And they opened their treasures and presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The first thing they did is worship him. Now, what's interesting is that it was not that uncommon for dignitaries of another country to come and bring gifts when a king was born in another country, a prince or the son of the king was born. And it was like this allegiance. It's like, okay, so we're friends, right? Now I'm not going to attack you. You're not going to attack me. And, and we'll get along was kind of the idea. This is a very different type of scene. First of all, these aren't kings or dignitaries. They're just men seeking truth. They're wise men. And the very first thing they do is not to establish some agreement, but they worship. Again, this tells me they understood he was more than a leader. He was more than somebody that would rule Israel. They had an understanding that he was Messiah. As much as they may have understood it, they knew that he was something far more. And again, this is where we get the idea of three kings because there's three types of gifts. Um, and it was very common to bring a gift to royalty. But these are very extravagant gifts. Now, they could have used lots of things. They could have, of course, gold is precious, but they could have chosen other things that had great value. And, and really, that's what they're doing. Is they're going, look, anywhere you go in the known world, this will buy you things. It wasn't a currency, and there was certainly there was Jewish money, there was Roman money. They could have delivered any, either one of those, but then you have a limitation on what you can do with it. These were things that were an investment, but they could be cashed out at any time. To them, that's probably all they were thinking. I think this is where probably people give too much credit to the wise men and go, oh, well, they gave these very significant symbolic gifts knowing that Jesus was the, was the Messiah. Well, we don't know any of that. But what we do know is that these gifts do have a prophetic air about them, certainly in the Jewish mindset. Maybe not to the giver of the gifts. Maybe the wise men didn't understand this at all. But in the Jewish mind, these had great meaning. Gold represented the deity of God, specifically the divine royalty of God. And that's why you see it throughout the temple and the Ark of the Covenant and the menorah and all these things were coated in gold because it was the idea of God's divine glory and His divine royalty. Incense also speaks of divinity, but along with that, a connection to mankind. That incense was offered there in the temple as a picture of the prayers rising before God, a sweet-smelling aroma to Him, right? And so it was this divine connection between God and man is what incense spoke of, the frankincense. Myrrh is very different because it was the main, its main purpose was in burial. It had other purposes, but that was its main one. And so it speaks of death. And again, each of these things points so clearly to life, Jesus' life and ministry, right? That he is the absolute divine presence of God. He is God himself, yet com connected to mankind. And he has come for the purpose of dying, right? I mean, that sums up what Jesus was here for. Now, the wise men are warned not to go back to Herod. And so they take the long way around Jerusalem to make it back to their own place. And again, that's something we don't always think about. 
It was probably a two-year journey home, a four-year round trip. That's a lot of commitment for people that weren't getting anything out of this, right? We never see them show up later and go, hey, you remember when I dropped off all that gold? <laughs> you owe me one. Or there wasn't anything. They simply came to know the truth, and they saw who Jesus was, and they worshiped him, and they left. Four-year commitment, that's huge. Where can compare that to the scribes and the chief priests that wouldn't leave Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem. Now, the wise men are warned in a dream, and then Joseph is also warned in verse 13. says, Take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Uh, this is interesting to me, because although we've been tracking the story, right? We know what Herod said, and we know what's going to take place. We know that he's going to send men to Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary didn't know any of this. They didn't even know the problem was there. They didn't know that Herod was going to be an issue, that he was coming to find Jesus. I mean, maybe the, the wise men said, hey, that Herod dude's really creepy, and <laughs> I would avoid him. Or, you know, maybe there was some warning, but but there isn't anything that they knew that this was coming about until Joseph has this dream. But what I love about it is that even though they were unaware of the problem, God has already put in place their protection and all of their provision two years before the problem even existed by sending the wise men, right? I just love it. I love how the Lord does these things. That this gold and frankincense of, and myrrh would have been more than enough for them to uproot themselves from Bethlehem, go all the way to Egypt, and come back again. Right? And probably still have some money left over after all of that. Why does he send him to Egypt? Well, we know that the, the scripture needed to be fulfilled, that uh, the Lord had said, my son will come out of Egypt. But Egypt was interesting. It was still under Roman control, and it had a huge Jewish population there. But the Jewish population kind of flew under the radar in, in Egypt. Not like in Judah where, or in Judea where everyone was looking to what the Jews were going to do next. What was the next rebellion they were going to start? How were they going to cause trouble here? And so Herod and, and Pilate and the other people that were trying to keep control were always watching the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders. Well, in Egypt... They were watching the Egyptians. They were watching other people. And it gave the Jewish people a lot more freedom to live and to just do their thing. And so the Lord sends him down to Egypt. And uh, in, in so doing, like I said, fulfills the prophecy from Hosea chapter 11 that out of Egypt I will call my son. It also kind of, I don't want to sidetrack too much on this. But it gives us some ideas of why it was hard for the Jewish people to understand where the Messiah was coming from. Because here in Micah it says Bethlehem, but then in Hosea it says Egypt. And so how can it be all these things? There's reference to him being a Nazarite as well. And wait, so he's from Nazareth, he's from Bethlehem, he's from Egypt, or is there three different? So we understand a little bit of the confusion, right? But now we see the picture all coming in to focus as the Lord brings all these things about. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children 
who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under. According to the time which he had determined from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice in Ramah, excuse me, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who have sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the, into the region of Galilee and came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which is, was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Um, again, you read this story, you're like, how horrible that, that must have been. Again, the people in Bethlehem had no idea that this was an issue. They wouldn't have been told why this was happening. These guys just roll in and start killing the children. And what a nightmare. The sad thing is, is that this also shows us how horrible Herod was. Because in all of the list of crimes and atrocities that he committed, this is barely a footnote. He did so many worse, more horrible, more dreadful things than this. He was terrible. Finally, Herod dies. And the angel speaks to Joseph in verse 20. tells him to rise, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel. And again, I love, I mentioned this last week, but I love Joseph's obedience because he doesn't question, right? He doesn't go, okay, that sounds good, but I'm going to need another sign. I'm going to need some more confirmation. I'm going to need a couple people to come to me with that same message and, and confirm that. He just arises and goes. And, and again, we can take that too simply and go, oh, well, that, you know, well, Joseph was a good guy. I think it speaks volumes about his faith that he just he just needed instruction. Lord, what do you want? I'm in. Let's do it. And he took off without questioning, without complaining. But I also think that we see that, that he was a man of thought, right? He wasn't just like a robot. He considered some of these things himself. Because while he's going back to Israel, he's focused on Jerusalem. And it's, a very, it's just barely even mentioned here. But it would make sense, right? His son is the Messiah, and he knows it. His mom knows it. And so what better place to take the Messiah than Jerusalem, right there in the temple? But he realizes, wait, it's Herod's son that's still ruling there. I, we can't go that way. And sure enough, the Lord confirms it in a dream, says, yeah, don't go there. And the Lord hadn't told him to go to Jerusalem. He just said, go to Israel. But now the Lord sends him back, and he ends up going back to uh, Nazareth, his hometown. Which to me, I think that would have been hard. Of all the places that they could have gone, they go to the one place that knew Mary had been found with child before the wedding. Whatever reason, they go back to Nazareth, they've gone full circle, and they're, they're back in their hometown. Um, but again, all of this, while, like I said, there's, there's a Christmas aspect and what we usually think of, but for me, this whole story is just so rich with God's provision and his protection, right? 
Joseph and Mary were oblivious to a lot of this stuff. And it's funny, Candy and I have had this conversation lately a lot where, you know, our kids are out of the house and they're on the mainland now. You know, stuff will be coming back in a few weeks. But we just kind of look at, you know, they're doing good and things are going great right now. And we're like, but we have no idea what we're doing. We've, we never had a clue. Like problems would arise and we're like, oh, we didn't even know that was a thing. And it had already been taken care of. And a lot of times we just feel like we're like, you know, floating through life. <laughs> and, and to some degree, I think that's okay. Because I find that when I know a problem or I get focused on a problem, I get all stressed out about it and I'm losing sleep about it. And what I'm doing is I'm forgetting the Lord already has the plan for it. You know, nothing catches him off guard. We come into a situation like, oh, man, I owe a bunch of taxes. Or, oh, man, you know, things aren't going good at work. Or I'm in this, you know, this bad relationship. Or I'm having this argument. Whatever it is, nothing, the Lord isn't in heaven going, oh, gosh, I didn't see that coming. Right? Oh, oh I, I haven't even thought about those things. Let me think about it. You know, like the first time we pray about an issue, God's like, what are we talking about? He knew years before we did. Joseph and Mary don't have a clue about what Herod's all about and what he's going to do. Yet God, two years before that, had already made provision for it, had already made a plan for them, had already provided for them financially to do that very thing. And he had brought it through other people as a gift. And I think that's one of the things that we need to be very aware of. Because when we pray and we're like, Lord, help, you know, we need this this something or a situation or whatever it might be. And we're asking the Lord for it. And then he provides. And it's easy for us to go, oh, no, 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 that's okay. The Lord's going to provide, right? What if Mary and Joseph, the, the, the wise men show up and they're like, look, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and this is for you. And, and they're like, no, 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 not, that's okay. Take that with you. Go give it to somebody else. We're fine. The Lord will take care of us. And the Lord's like, hey, I sent these people, Right? I brought them to you to provide for something you're not even aware of yet. I think too often in our pride, we're like, no, no, I don't need your help. Maybe we're quick to help others, but we're slow to accept help from others, right? And that's something that we need to be aware of. Joseph and Mary needed to be humbled and receive the gifts from others in order to be provided for the things that were ahead of them, that they weren't even aware of them. Again, it's easy for us to stress and freak out when I just think it is so good. And we know this in our head, but it's not quite sunk down into our hearts that we just pause and go, Lord, I'm going to trust you've got the answer. I'm going to trust that you're the one in control. And I don't need to know what you have in store. I just need to know you. And that's enough. And that doesn't mean we sit on our hands. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. Again, Joseph was using wisdom to go, I don't think we should go to Jerusalem, right? So we're called to use wisdom. We're called to be involved, but we're primarily to be involved with Jesus and not distracted by the problem, right? And he's going to get us where we need to go, and he knows how to provide for the things that we're unaware of, just like he has with Joseph and Mary and Jesus and, uh, man, it's awesome. I love to see how the Lord takes care of his people. And for us, man, we need to be, again, that person that when the Lord says, this is what you're to do, we don't argue, we don't debate, we just rise up like Joseph, we go do it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.